describe what's going on in the picture, my virtual background? Please. I, that's a picture of a uh, passion flower or passion vine plant uh, with a, uh, a caterpillar on it. The caterpillars that are, that, you know, uh, are specific to that plant, which is the Gulf fritillary butterfly, very beautiful butterfly. And um, that's one of the caterpillars, which is eating it down to the ground right now. Oh, wow. Quite amazing. So welcome to iPad 53 Rob. <laughs> we don't, I'm, that's what we see of your name. <laughs> that's a lot of iPads. Robert. Hello, Joel. Hi, welcome. Kirk, um, it seems like you know Kim and Joan already, um, and uh, I don't think we've ever had a chance to meet before, but I've enjoyed some of your work, so. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. I say I've enjoyed some of your work in the sense that I know I've not seen all of your work, but I've enjoyed what I've seen. That's what I mean to say, <laughs> not the other. Good, the other ones are awful, I'm sure. You've missed the bad ones. I'm a playwright for the Rude Max. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, what do you think, Kim, as host? Should we wait a couple more minutes to see if anybody else would want to join us, or shall we get going? Yeah, I don't believe in waiting. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get going. Well, welcome. Uh, my name is Joel Barna. I'm a, a longtime practitioner at Alpamata and um, uh, a member of the uh, first council at Alpamata. And I'll talk about what that means in, uh, later on. But uh, just, just to say I've been involved with Appamato a long time, it's, it's a very important part of my life. Uh, and um, uh, meditation is important, but more than that, the Sangha and the teachers at Appamato are important to me. Uh, when, when I say Sangha, I mean all the people who give their time and devote um, energy and help support uh, the, uh, the, the group functioning as a community that supports Zen practice. Uh, and that includes Kim, mostly, who's our host today, and who hosts a lot of things online and does a whole lot for Appamata. That includes Joan Harmon, whom you see, who is currently uh, in a special role called the head student, um, which is a, a role taken during what's called a practice period it's kind of like a Zen revival period when uh, people dedicate themselves to uh, uh, deepen their practice. And the head student is both a uh, service role and a recognition of dedication for people who um, uh, are themselves deepening their practice by engaging more uh, with the whole Sangha. And the role is described as a friend, Kim Sangha member. So uh, the head students often have um, tea, these days virtual tea, with um, uh, Sangha members and talk about practice matters and, and so on. Hi, Robert, how are you? I recognize Good. you. This is Robert <laughs> Steinbomber, uh, the father of uh, John Eric Steinbomber, I know, and an old friend 
from my days when I was editing an architecture magazine and he was one of the advisors for the magazine. So. Sorry to interrupt. That's okay. So glad to have you. So, um, Kirk, would you say why you decided to come and join the orientation today? Yeah, I uh, have been meditating for a while and I've even visited Apamana a few times, uh, and, but it's been so long, I felt like I should go through the orientation again. Um, but in my practice, I think a thing I really lack is a teacher and a sangha in my reading and in my thinking. Um, so I thought I like Apamana quite a bit every time I've been there. So Very it's good. a nice place to start looking. That's great. That's great. Um, in your practice, are you uh, have have you mostly focused on Zen teachings or other style of Buddhist teaching or even non-Buddhist meditation? Uh, mostly Zen. I met Buddhism through actually the Rude Mex did a cultural evening at Apamada, and then I started coming every once in a while to sit, and then started reading, I guess, exclusively in Zen and sitting. Okay. 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 Right. Uh, when when you're meditating, would you say how often you meditate? And I med meditate every day for twenty minutes. Okay, that's very good. Very good indeed. Some days. Okay. And Robert, would you talk some about what um, uh, made you decide to connect this morning? Just to learn more. I I have been to Apamata a couple of times. Thank you very much. And um, tune in to um, Flint's talks on Tuesday, um, inquiry. And I'm uh, interested and engaged and I'm totally naive. So I should probably do an orientation every week. But this is my first one and I appreciate your patience with letting me join. I'm, I'm glad, and this is, uh, I, I'm just glad, I'll just say that. Uh, okay, so you, uh, Robert, you are familiar with Flint and his mm. the way he talks and what he teaches, and how about Peg? Have you spent any time listening to Peg's talks or had a chance to speak with her or anything? I'll only meet her in the maybe three times I've been to Apamata before everything shut down, uh, met, but I've not had the opportunity to sit and listen to her or um, spend much more time than hello in the kitchen. Okay. Okay. Well, um, today, after the orientation, Peg will be, right now, I'll just say, first of all, right now, regular meditation is going on at Apamata. It started at eight o'clock. It'll end around uh, 9.50 and um, that will be, and then, and then Peg will give a Dharma talk. And I really, really encourage you to um, uh, stay and listen to Peg's talk if you can, uh, because it's, I mean, they're always great. She's, she um, is widely read and she does not, skim over the surface of anything. She goes deep into everything. It's quite, she, she and, and Flint are remarkable teachers. And um, she's, um, it, it, it's definitely worth connecting with her too, not just hearing her, first to hear her, but then to connect with her as a teacher and to connect with Flint as a teacher as possible, uh, you know, online and so on. Um, so Kirk, you know, just email Peg sometime and, and ask if you can talk with her. And I think it would be um, it would be a good thing. So I'll, I'm going to tell a little bit of a story about myself. But first, I want to ask um, Joan to talk about um, your connection with Apamata. What first connected you with Apamata? Um. I have two children who have grown, and when my first one went to college, I realized that my focus on them was coming to an end, although we never lose that focus. And I said, hey, I'm gonna have some time for me. 
And so I went to Seton Cove and I signed up for two classes. One was on the artist way and the other one was a three uh, lunch thing with a person named Peg Syverson. And those two classes changed my life. To this day, I journal every morning and uh, I meditate every day. I, uh, Apamata is so important. I realize what a positive force it is in the world. Um, when I'd go to inquiry, when we had it uh, uh, in real life, um, and I would just see that people had come in the middle of their work day to sit and hear a little bit of a lesson and, and share um, issues with their practice and then go back out. And I said, this is just important. Important things are happening right here that are going to have such a big impact as we all leave and go out in the world. And uh, it's, it's, the people that are a part of Apamata, it, it's not an easy thing to do. They, they are working to be the best they can in the world and to uh, impact the world as well as we can. And it's, it's just a wonderful thing to be a part of. Thank you. And Kim, would you share what first connected you with Apamata? You're muted, Kim. There you go. Sure. My first connection with Apamata was about 10 years ago um, when I took a work day-long workshop with Flint that he gave at the Austin Zen Center. And then um, I was practicing then there. And then I um, started coming to Apamata and have... Uh, never left and uh having been part of many organizations it's the first functional organization i've been part of uh and so uh you know i i got to the point where i didn't believe that an organization could really work and could really resolve issues when they came up and uh now i'm seeing that that's possible and um I'm in love with the people who are there and, you know, constantly growing and challenging myself and being challenged. So thank you for being here. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, um, Kirk, I'm, I get the idea that you've read a lot in Buddhism and in Zen. Uh, so let me address this question to Robert. Robert, have you, are you familiar with the story of Gotama, the original, what, what is, uh, well, I'm not. some versions, the original Buddha? You don't have to finish the sentence, I'm not. I actually studied Zen with an architecture professor in the 70s named Michael Benedict, and we, um, we did design for a project, a Buddhist retreat in Williamson County, and he taught us to meditate, and it was, and I was fascinated, and got into it for a while, and, and I lost focus. So no, I don't know the origin story, that's part of why I'm here. Michael Benedict, the, the professor at UT? Yeah. Oh, I never knew that. Okay. <clears throat> um, well, I'm going to tell my own extremely shortened version of the Buddha's story because with with the the one little part of it that i tend to focus on so there was there there are dozens of stories of the life of the buddha and some of them have to do with his previous lifetimes and and uh, uh and there are different emphases in in the ways they are told in different versions uh but um in the the standard version that i'm familiar with he was a prince or a, a nobleman uh, in a city in what is now uh, Nepal or northern India on the border with Nepal. Uh, and um, his parents uh, had heard a prophecy before he was born that he was going to be great in some way, either a king 
or a world leader of some kind, a world teacher. They wanted to protect him. Um, and so they, they went to extreme lengths to protect him from uh, knowledge about sickness and aging and death. And the story is that he went out, he snuck out of the palace one night, uh, leaving his life of luxury behind just to see what was going on in the city. And he saw a sick person and he saw an old person and he saw a dead body. And, and he was troubled by this. Uh, and after some time he decided to leave. Uh, in some versions, he's still a young man uh, and he leaves his parents. In others, he's married, he has a son. Uh, and um, he's actually leaving he decides to leave in the middle of an orgy that he's participating in, where everybody's lying, you know, everybody's drunk and lying around drooling, and he gets all disgusted with it. Um, but he decides to leave home and to do what thousands of other people in India or, or in this region have been doing for a while, and that is to become homeless uh, and to dedicate his life to uh, exploring what the meaning of life is and how he can learn to be free from the suffering that is in, inherent in human life, which is uh, uh, condemned to sickness and aging and death. And he studies with a number of teachers um, and he engages in uh, uh, more and more uh, privation and asceticism. He almost starves himself to death uh, and he, in his later teachings, he described how weak he became and how um, emaciated and, and so on. And, and he had a number of followers. Each of the teachers he studied with offered to make him their successor. But um, he, in, in each case, he would say, um, you know, thank you for your teaching, but this is not leading me to liberation. There's got to be something else. And he got to the point where he was on his own. He was practicing more and more um, uh, privations, almost died. And he, it, the, as the story goes, he was walking beside, walking beside a road. He uh, just keeled over into a ditch. Uh, his, his body gave out on him. And a young woman walked by and offered him some sweetened pudding, which he ate. His, he had a, a small number of followers, five followers at this point, who abandoned him. They said, well, if you're going to give up, we're, we're just going to, you, you can't be our teacher anymore. But he regained his strength. And um, sometime later, it's a, and this is, the, the uh, timeline is, is interesting because it seems to all happen at once, but it must have taken some time for him to regain his strength. But while he was um, maybe uh, eating more regularly or something to regain his strength, he um, thought back and he remembered a time in his childhood. And this is the particular thing that I, that I focus on as, very, as, as most important. And he thought back to his childhood to a harvest festival that his parents were taking part in. And um, uh, he was a toddler, apparently, sitting on a blanket under a rose apple tree, which is a kind of a mulberry tree, I have found. And um, he was happy. He was happy not because he was getting something that he wanted, but there was just a feeling of happiness. And there he was, recovering from almost dying, uh, thinking about what he could do for his practice, he, he was not giving up, but he was, he was thinking, well, maybe remembering this inherent quality of joy, it would be, would be a better starting point than trying to starve myself to death or trying to discipline my body so severely all the time. So with that in mind, then he went and he sat down under a Bodhi tree, which is a kind of a fig, uh, tree, uh, common throughout the tropics. And um, he's just determined that he was going to stay there 
and, and investigate with his mind until he could find what it was that was the cause of suffering and what would lead to liberation from suffering. And he famously came up with what is called the Four Noble Truths, or which much more persuasively for me has been called by the uh, teacher Stephen Batchelor, the Four Tasks, uh, which are to know that there is suffering in life, to acknowledge that, to, to not shy away from it, to turn toward it, as the saying goes all over and over in Zen, uh, to see what the suffering arises from, and, there, and that the suffering arises from our tendency to, our, not, a, not just a tendency, our innate unblockable thirst to grasp onto what is pleasant and to um, get rid of what is unpleasant. And, and, you know, that the suffering in life extends, the, the, the word in Pali is dukkha, and the suffering in life extends from um, uh, dying, illness, aging, to the dissatisfaction we experience when we're sitting in a chair for 20 minutes, and we just have an urge to move a little bit, you know? It's like, oh, well, my neck doesn't feel right. I'm just going to move my neck, you know, or I've got an itch on my foot. I've got to take care of that, you know, that 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 is a continuum that goes from our constant desire for change away, shift, leaning away from what we don't like and leaning toward what we do like. That is a part of the human uh, situation and, and seems to be true for all kinds of life. Uh, and then the third task is to see that it's possible to remember the other part of our life, which is that joyous part where we, which, in which we can be happy and have other qualities of, that are beneficial to us and to others that are not based on getting what we want or avoiding what we don't want. Uh, and that, you know, to, to recognize that there's a, a path toward liberation and the fourth step is to follow what he called the, the uh, uh, eight step path of um, right thought and all the way through uh, right livelihood and light, right wisdom. And again, although the, the usual translation is right, it is, uh, there are many different ways of translating the, the Pali and Sanskrit words that, that are used for that. And a lot of people in Zen will really focus on whether or not they are appropriate or, and, and right in meeting the situation, not right in the sense of uh, morally right and wrong or, or morally like um, sinful or non-sinful, so that sort of thing. More like appropriate. Appropriate, thank you. Um, so he then taught, uh, for more than 30 years, he traveled around the, uh, the, the northern part of India, uh, northeastern part of India there for 30 years. He, he was friends with kings in two opposing kingdoms, the one he was born in and the, uh, the kingdom of, you know, and, a. I'm blanking on the name of the kingdom he was born in right now, but there was also the kingdom of Magadha. And he was friends with uh, both of the kings and he traveled between their capitals and he, he befriended merchants and warriors and noblemen. Uh, and his teaching was radical. It was very much, he was very much uh, like the Jains uh, and the privations that he practiced, those were standard Jain practices, by the way. It was understood that by the Jains that it was a good idea to kill yourself, to, to starve yourself, that that would be atonement for all the harm you did in the world. Um, and so he stepped away from that, but um, uh, he, um, 
he was still in, there was still the kind of inflection of this uh, practice from the Jains in his teaching. Uh, like the Jains, he was a person who uh, paid no attention to the caste system uh, and uh, that was prevalent in the society of his day in, in Hindu religion, in the Brahmanic religion. And he said anybody could achieve liberation. Question was, could anybody achieve liberation in this lifetime or would it take many lifetimes and so on? This was a, a source of debate uh, and one that he never resolved. He just said, do your best right now. And um, so he traveled around this part of India. Uh, toward the end of his life, the kings that he was friends with were both overthrown by their sons. And this is told in the, the um, uh, book, uh, after Buddhism by Stephen Batchelor. And uh, they, the new king of Magadha invaded uh, the Buddha's homeland. He watched as this was happening uh, and tried to reach out to the king who ignored him, the new king. And um, there was a revolt against the Buddha led by one of his followers who said, we thought you were a great, you know, a world powerful, a world teacher and, and powerful and had magic abilities to do things. And you're not even stepping in to, dis, to keep our homeland from being, being destroyed. So most of his followers left him. And at the end of his life, and this is like a, 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 a tragedy that is not emphasized in, in a lot of the teachings, but you know, Stephen Bachelor kind of stitches this together from the, from the stories that are there. So he was in a small village. He was with a handful of followers, including uh, Ananda, his cousin, and one of his uh, longest serving followers who would then go on to be the, the oral, oral repository of, of uh, the Buddhist teachings. And um, uh, they were in a village. They were begging for their food. He got some food. Maybe he was poisoned deliberately. Maybe he ate just something that was spoiled, whatever. But he knew he was dying. And, he, he, and his followers knew he was dying. And Ananda said, what are we going to do? You've been our teacher for more than 30 years. We believe in you. We, we need you, what are, what are we gonna do if you die? And he said, be a light unto yourself and go forward with watchful, attentive care. That is apamata in Pali. And, uh, and the, that was the last word he spoke. Uh, and that's the, the quality that apamata is founded on and founded on trying to foster in uh, its teachings and in the Sangha members. So it, it is relational as, as a quality, it's relational, it's active, it's attentive, it's awake. Um, it has the, the, what are called the four Brahma Viharas, the uh, uh, benevolent joy, the uh, compassion, um, the um, uh, equanimity, and I've forgotten the first one. What's the first Brahma Vihara about? Well, the first one is benevolence. Benevolence. Oh, it's sympathetic joy. Okay, I combined benevolence and sympathetic joy. They seem very much the same to me. But um, so that's a, that's that story. Um, and then there's how. Buddhism then spread out and came to be connected with the world in the ways that show up at Apamata. So there's a famous Zen koan. Um, why is Bodhidharma traveling to the East? Uh, there's a wonderful Korean movie by that name. Um, so a teacher from India traveled to the East uh, and uh, taught a particular kind of Buddhism. Uh, there had been Buddhism practiced for hundreds of years in China. He was not the first one, but um, 
it was mostly kind of ritual based and and uh, kind of more like more like literary criticism or or literary investigation than uh, deep practice, or at least that's the version that's told in Zen circles. Um, <clears throat> he um, encountered the uh, ancient Chinese teaching of Taoism, which had many things in common with uh, Buddhist practice and Buddhist teachings, focusing on openness to life as it is. And um, at any rate, uh, Zen Buddhism became uh, a, a, a um, widespread movement in China for more than a thousand years. Uh, and um, in the year, uh, um, around the year 1100, teachers, including one named Aihe Dogen, uh, went to China to study with Chan masters there and brought that brought the teachings from the Chan masters uh, back to Japan. Um, one set of teachers brought the teachings that were uh, most uh, what we call Rinzai Zen, that is mostly focused on koans, the stories of the, uh, the Chan teachers in China and how they used whatever means was available from gentleness to extreme fierceness to help their students awaken. Uh, and then there, and then a hey Dogen brought back what is called the Soto school um, or came to be called the Soto school, which focuses more on <clears throat> meditation practice includes some studies of, of koan, but, but um, koan is not the, 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 uh, guiding practice for Soto Zen, um, but rather uh, meditation. And, and the way Dogen said it is uh, what is most amazing to me and, and most striking. Uh, it is basically that when you sit Zazen, uh, you, just, you just sit up and you take a posture. And when you do that, you are participating in a ceremony. And at that point, you can't do it wrong. This is, and this is one of the first things that Peg ever said to me that had a huge impact on me. Uh, and uh, I will finish with Dogen and I'll go, come back to that. But he says, you're, you are participating in a ceremony that is ongoing, that's the unfolding of the world that has been participated in by all the Buddhas and all the ancestors from time immemorial, and um, it does not depend on your effort. Your effort matters to you and, and to the world, but Zazen is sitting Zazen. It's not like you have a job to sit Zazen right. Go ahead and do your best, but Zazen is sitting Zazen. And it is, it is more, you are just making connection with the glory of the unfolding of the universe. So that's, that's a heck of a story, it seems to me. Uh, and that's what the Soto Zen school is, is based on. Uh, plus, you know, they wear those great robes and there's the incense and the bowing and the chanting and all that stuff. That's really, that's pretty cool. I actually had a lot of trouble with that at first when I started sitting. I went, I, I started uh, when my son was a young teenager and I was having trouble parenting. I began looking for, um, well, and there were other things going on in my life, but I was looking for a spiritual practice that was not theistic. And I knew of Flint Sparks uh, from Friends and I knew of the Austin Zen Center and um, decided to go and, and check it out. So I, would, I sat a couple of times a week for several years at the Austin Zen Center. And um, uh, there was a new teacher there uh, who uh, replaced Flint, whom unfortunately I never connected with. I, I, uh, I brought all of my projections with me and decided that it would be just too scary to talk to this Zen teacher who would be able to read my mind and see how unworthy I was, you know? 
So I, I, I did have a couple of meetings with her, which, you know, in the way of projections, they turned out exactly as I predicted. Uh, and um, uh, like I said, I just never connected with her. And then I was experiencing what often happens in meditation, which is slowing down enough to see how quickly my mind was racing from thought to thought to thought to thought. And thinking that it was my job to stop that and getting more and more uncomfortable as that was going on. So I decided, well, if this is gonna make me crazier instead of more steady, instead of more uh, at ease and, and um, centered, then I, I just better quit. So I quit for several years. Mm. And in the interim, I actually started seeing Flint as a psychotherapy client. And um, at one point in a group therapy session, he recommended that it would be a good thing if I had a regular uh, practice and that I, you know, and by that time he had moved into the building in back at Appomattox. So I knew where it was and, and so on. I went to, to um, Appomattox on a Sunday and uh, a, a wonderful Sangha member named Leela tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you like to see Peg? And I, I knew that I was supposed to have made a uh, reservation with Peg or asked to see her before that. Uh, and I hadn't. So I said, no, no, thank you. And so which cracked Leela up. Just like, okay. Uh, and, uh, and that's how Leela responds to things. She laughs a lot. So, um, Later, the next week I did talk to Peg and, and uh, she also was amused by that story and, and you know, understood how I'd come to, to turn down the invitation because I didn't understand it that way. But I met Peg, I told her about, about my experience. I said, I know I'm doing it all wrong. I, I, I just, I'm so embarrassed, I don't know where to start. I feel like I've got so many bad habits with sitting and then she said that thing that I mentioned before. You can't do it wrong. This is actually a body-centered practice. Let your body be at ease. Do your best to align your thoughts with what's going on in your body, uh, going on in your body. That is, pay attention to what's going on in your body. And when your mind wanders off, which it absolutely must do, because that's the way our brains work, just come back. And you can't do it wrong because Zazen is sitting Zazen, it's not you. I go, really? Okay. So, um, and that was about uh, 13 years ago for me. So, um, Kirk, you know about uh, Peg's background by any chance? A little bit. I know Peg better than Flint. Okay. Um, she was a teacher, yes, at the university. She was. Yeah. She's retired now. Yeah. And... Do you know that she's an ordained Zen priest and, uh, and was ordained through the lineage, through the San Francisco Zen Center. Um, and, uh, and Flint also is ordained through the lineage of the San Francisco Zen Center. Peg also studied for years, starting when she was a graduate student in San Diego with a teacher whose name was Charlotte Beck, who goes by the Japanese name, Joko, Joko Beck, now deceased, um, died about, I think, eight years ago. Um, but she was, a, she was a very Chan-like Zen teacher, um, very um, stripped down, not much emphasis on ritual, not much emphasis on formality. She didn't wear robes uh, and, um, the story is that she had a daughter who was uh, quite an expert on uh, Japanese Zen and who advised her mother, just give it up. You're not doing it right. Just like give all that stuff up. <laughs> Where this, having had a combative teenage son, I could, that, that, fun, that story cracks me up. So um, uh, at any rate, that was the style that Joko embraced. And she was also very open to Western psychological exploration and saw that as, as very necessary. 
And in fact, the first time I ever heard of Joko Beck, there was this new thing called the internet. And I was just looking, I just decided to look for some Buddhist writings on, on the, the internet. And I found something that was a transcription of one of her talks called The Pools. And uh, I have to find that again. But she tells, she tells a parable of people in the desert who come to a pool and they um, uh, take off all their backpack and all the heavy things that they're carrying and then they get in the pool and then they relax. Uh, and then other people in the, in the parable, and maybe I'm saying it wrong, but they, but they take all the heavy stuff in with them and then that eases their burden and it dissolves the bad things and, and, and uh, helps them deal uh, with the, the work that they need to do rather than leave it outside, you know? So that really struck me and I thought, oh, well, okay. So she was recommending like, don't turn your, don't think that, that Zen meditation is something that you can use to bypass the necessary work you need to do to be honest with yourself. Use the tools of Western psychology that are appropriate for aid and help in the necessary investigation that is the real work of, of uh, the, the life in Zazen. So Peg studied with um, Joko and Joko authorized her as a teacher uh, and um, she, th that style of teaching shows up in everything that Peg does. So, and then Flint is, um, you, know, you know, some of his background. He was a psychotherapist, uh, has a career, had a career as a psychotherapist, um, and then became a, a Zen teacher, ordained uh, in San Francisco. His main teacher was Blanche Hartman, uh, who died a couple of years ago uh, and um, was a very powerful person in his life. The thing about Zazen, sitting Zazen, Flint often tells a story that uh, he was with Blanche in San Francisco and they were in a retreat and he was working hard at the retreat and he came in to have a meeting with Blanche and said, okay, I think I'm doing well today. I really had a, I really feel like I'm getting it and I, I had a good session and, and I really uh, was doing a good job sitting uh, in meditation this morning. And that Blanche, you know, practically levitated. She was so irked by this and said, you don't sit Zazen, Zazen sit Zazen. And they was, you know, that this was a real kind of a fierceness that he was not uh, accustomed to from her. And it really, it made it all the more important to him that he, that she had expressed it that way. So let me stop at that point and ask, may I, may I answer any questions? From, from any, anybody? Yeah. Uh, I so much appreciate that, that history and background that I, pre I apologize to the other three who've sat through that and knew it by heart, but I didn't. I want to ask this question. Um, in my life right now, my best teachers are my son and his wife, John, Eric, and Jessica. And they... And uh, let, me, let me break in. And Kirk, the, uh, John Eric is the chair of the Appamata board. And uh, uh, he replaced Joan, who was the chair of the Appamata board before him. And Jessica Steinbommer is his wife and uh, uh, co-author of a new book about UX, UI, uh, and uh, business partner. And do you, do you know them at all, Kirk, by any chance? No, I don't. Okay, well anyway, very important people and, and very dedicated people for Appamata. So, very dedicated, very dedicated without... Um, oh, Joan, hang on. You're, okay, you're, now you're unmuted, go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to say Jessica <laughs> is on council three. Ah, and Jessica is a member of a council. And she, and she monitors the um, Clint's talks on on the on Tuesday. Right. She, she monitors that, um, and they live it. 
without proselytizing. It's one mm -hmm. of the reasons that I've left the Christian church decades ago. And that's what all of you that I've met and gotten to know through Othamada do. But they said something to me uh, last week, and I'll make this brief question, I promise. Um, my wife had a small Zen statue out by a pond in our backyard, and it's one of the, one of the, it's a, you know, it's a little cheap concrete casting, but the ones that are decorated have much more beading and, and so forth. And I asked him about that because I don't see that <coughs> at the Mata. And he said that some cultures worship the, the worship the Buddha and Apamada's style is to live the Buddha. Is that a fair? And that's, I'm not quoting him totally accurately. That's what I took from it. And that's my question is it seems that it's following the path instead of worshiping the path. Is that anything like what I'm taking from this properly? I, that sounds absolutely appropriate to me. Uh, I, I will say there are, there are, many, many kinds of Buddhism that uh, are um, uh, blended in with the cultures that they arise in or that they come mm -hmm. into. And that happened in China. So Chinese Buddhism is quite different from Tibetan Buddhism, which is different from Indian Buddhism, uh, which is different from uh, the Buddhism as practiced in uh, Ceylon or uh, Sri Lanka and uh, Burma or now Myanmar uh, and very different from Buddhism as is practiced in the West uh, and in the West uh, a lot of Buddhism is uh, non-theistic but there are definitely theistic versions of Buddhism and for example almost as old as Mahayana Buddhism, what's called Mahayana Buddhism, which of which Zen is part, is what's called Pure Land Buddhism. Uh, and this is a, a version of Buddhism in which people have the core belief that it is not possible to awaken in this corrupt world, that it's necessary to wait for a future lifetime when Amitabha Buddha will come back and save humanity from its inherent corruption, and we will all live in the pure land. So that sounds like, you know, the word soteriology, the, the belief in a savior who will save us and, and change the world and all of that, that there are theistic and soteriological versions of Buddhism. Zen is not like that. Uh, the emphasis within Zen is that it is possible to awaken in this lifetime, the question is, what does it count to be awake? Or what, what makes you awake? Um, <clears throat> and in the Chan stories, um, there's, there's lots of examples of people being awakened, but not much explanation of, of what that awakening consists of. Um, in the early teachings of the Buddha, there was a great concern about being awake and whether or not one was a stream enterer or an arahat or, or other names that meant levels of being awake. And in, in those versions, certainly the um, uh, stepping away from um, earthly pleasure uh, and, and uh, being, um, uh, unmoved by uh, greed and ignorance and sexuality and uh, sensual, all kinds of sensual appetites. Those were very important as at least markers of being awake. Uh, and um, that continues within most versions of Buddhism, mm. uh, but not so much within Western Buddhism where people are Householders and live regular lives. You know, if you were if you were in a monastery, you would have a lot more time to to practice in those other ways. So uh, Joan raises her hand. Uh, I uh, 
identify with what you're talking about, Robert, and that's one of the things that I love about Apamata. Uh, apparently, I think Joko Beck on her altar, instead of having a statue of the Buddha, had a rock. And on Apamata's altar, instead of a statue of, of Buddha, we have a beautiful rock that came from Switzerland that Flint brought back that was, uh, the mountain was supposed to have, in I don't know, uh, enchanted rocks or something, but that is what we have. And so if you listen to Peg's uh, Dharma talk, you may be able to see that on the altar, but it's a, a rock about this big. And that's what we have in place of a, a statue of the Buddha. Thank you. Uh, Kim, let me say one thing and then I wanna call on you. But I, I wanna say that there's also uh, there's an explanation of what it need uh, of what it means to be awake by the writer Stephen Batchelor, uh, who is a wonderful teacher and one of my favorites. Um, and he says, you know, we walk around in the trance of our uh, uh, conditioning. We we are biological beings who are conditioned by our culture, by our memories, by what we learn from our parents, what we construct, the, 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 the kind of um, shell of protectiveness that we construct to protect ourselves, the, the carapace of, of keeping the world out and protecting ourselves, right? To, to minimize pain and, and maximize pleasure. And so there's all this um, conditioning that we carry around with us. And he's in, in Stephen Batchelor's version, uh, he says, if you are acting, and this is one, acting, if you are acting outside of your conditioning, you are enlightened. You are performing enlightenment at that point. So it's not esoteric knowledge. It's action. And it's not action based on esoteric knowledge. It's action based on honest, compassionate, equanimous uh, relationship to yourself and others. So, and, and, and that's what Peg and Flint teach. And it's, it's very, it, that's at the core of the kind of re relationality that they teach as well. So Kim, you were gonna yeah, I, I just wanted to add to what Joan was saying that for about 300 years, there were no statutes of the Buddha. And in the same way, there were no statutes of Christ for, I think, almost 500 years or something for a long time. And there's the admonition about doing icons in Judaism. So it really carries through. And, and in a way, to me, it, it's a little bit of a weakness when we need to have a statue or an icon, you know, mm -hmm. to then we start worshiping it rather than something that can't be defined. That's what I took from it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's a great definition. You're, you're all so generous with me and your time and your, <laughs> your connection. I really appreciate it. So I, I'll just add that 300 year gap is during that time is when Alexander the Great uh, uh, invaded the Gandhara kingdom with his enormous army and made it as far as Afghanistan where he died. Um, and um, uh, his, many of his soldiers <clears throat> remained behind and they included apparently some wonderful sculptors who uh, began uh, using their skills to make this Buddha guy that they were talking about look like Apollo. And that's how, um, the uh, images of Buddha came to be curly haired because they were sculpted by Greeks, you know? And yeah. um, those were great teaching tools. So they, it, it spread out then ar ar around other areas. Now there were images, there were lots of Buddhist images earlier on, mostly wall paintings and, and, um, um, images of, of other celestial beings, but not of Gautama uh, in Indian 
uh, worship centers. Um, but anyway, that's it. Thank you. So <clears throat> let's see, it's 9.09. We need to wrap up in about 10 minutes. So I want to suggest that um, we just spend some time sitting together. And, um, and then again, I strongly urge you to uh, go back to the Appamata calendar and click on the link that says Zazen starting at eight o'clock. And that will take you into the, the uh, Zoom space to hear Peg's talk. Uh, that'll start at, at around uh, 9.50. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. This, that will take you into the Zoom space so that you can sit uh, the last 30 minutes of uh, the sitting at Appamata and then hear Peg's talk. Um, but okay, so Dogen's advice on sitting for everybody. It's called the, the Universal Zazen Instruction, which is so great. He says, um, sit uh, have a quiet room that is uh, comfortable and well ventilated. Have some cushions. Uh, sit down on your cushion. Uh, he's, he is in his Japanese culture in which this is the standard way of sitting. So um, you've got a, a zabutan, which is a square cushion, and then a zafu, which is sitting on top of that, a round cushion, which raises the level of your seat slightly above your knees. Just uh, fold your legs uh, in a full lotus position if you can, or half lotus if you can, or sit in a chair. Uh, we say in America, and I always sit in a chair, uh, almost. And um, it says rock back and forth until you find the place where your spine feels naturally in alignment and uh, from side to side and back and forth. And then, this is not in his instruction, but uh, Flint often adds this, imagine a thread that is at the top of your head that is gently, that's located kind of above your spine and that is helping maintain your head from sagging forward or to the side, whatever. Make sure your shoulders are in line with your hips and your ears are in line with your shoulders. Uh, you can put your hands into this uh, uh, mudra, as it's called, which goes back to ancient Indian practice where your hands are making like a cup and your, your thumb tips are lightly touching each other. And uh, that's a great uh, aid to practice as well because uh, when your mind wanders, your thumbs will either, uh, your, your thumbs will, will, will reflect your mental state. If you're angry, they will be all smushed together. If, they, if, you're, if you've zoned out, they will kind of sag and, and, and lose contact. So it's a great way to be mindful, to just be mindful of that touch point. So that's one of the things then. So he says, take several deep breaths and pay attention to what they feel like going in and out. And then settle into a normal breathing rhythm, not forcing it, not attempting to do anything special. And then the best part, he says, think non-thinking. So I have my own version of what it means to think non-thinking, which I've run by Peg and Flint several times, and they say, uh, that's not wrong, Joel, keep working at it, uh, and, which is to pay attention to what's going on in my body, to know, which it took me an, an incredible amount of time to discover for myself, but to know that your body is alive. It, it, in the sense that you normally think of your mind as alive, that it is taking in and processing information all the time. Maybe thousands of sensory inputs from which you are selecting only a few as being important, usually the most unpleasant ones, uh, but, that, but that all this is going on in your body and it is that your body is an expression of the unfolding of the universe. Your body is sitting zazen with every breath you take, with every 
cell in your body that dies and is replaced. Zazen is happening. With every flicker across your visual field, Zazen is happening. Every time you hear a sound, uh, every time you feel the weight of your seat uh, on, or your, of your butt on your seat and your feet on the floor and the sensation of, temp uh, of uh, temperature on your legs or your hands, that is Zazen. It is, it's not, it's not going th through your thought processes. It's not being shaped into words, but it is the life that you are living right now. So just be with it. With apologies, I want to use the last couple of minutes that we have for questions or reflections. Kirk, uh, do you have any um, other questions that you have about Appamata? I, I only covered about a tenth of what I was supposed to cover in the orientation, so I bet there's oh, some things. It was fantastic. I learned quite a bit. Um, I was wondering just about the Zoom, the way the Zoom works. Is there any, will we miss the walking meditation and just sit and then listen? That you will have missed the walking meditation. On, on Sundays is the only time when there is walking meditation. Uh, and that happens between the sittings, which by the way, are 30 minutes at Appamata. Uh, the first uh, intensive I took part in, uh, at the end, there's a, a a point where people are offering their reflections and kind of their complaints and all that kind of stuff. And, and one, one woman said, 
God, I was just like, oh, this is the longest 20 minutes of my life. And Lynn said, well, that's because it was 30 minutes. <laughs> so, uh, I, I note that you, you had said 20 minutes before. So. Okay, so, um, but you can, Peg walks in the Zendo and does the clappers for the marking of the periods for the walking. Uh, there will be no walking at the end of the last sitting period. Uh, she just moves directly to the Dharma talk. So. Oh, and do you do eyes open or eyes closed? I can't you do. Eyes open, although eyes open. With, a, with a soft gaze. Um, and in, if we were in the Zendo, on Sundays we would sit facing the wall, the first two sitting periods, and then facing the center of the room, the third sitting period. Uh, facing the center of the room is in the Rinzai school or Rinzai style and uh, Joko trained in both Soto and Rinzai uh, traditions. So that was one of her innovations. The last sitting period of any, of any extended sitting is usually facing the center of the room. Um, and there, you know, it normally at an orientation, I would spend some time uh, for newcomers to help them feel comfortable with how to put their hands in the formal way, how to bow, when to bow, how to sit down at your seat and so on. But that's, uh, you know, we can't do that right now. So I, I, I skipped over that. But if you, you know, when the, when the Zendo opens again and we can, we can go back and sit, uh, it's important to me at least, that people not feel uneasy that they're gonna do the wrong thing. Um, and there's, there's two aspects of that. One, having some examples, and two, just knowing that nobody's gonna be judging you if you do the wrong thing. Just like, do your best, you know? So Robert, any questions? No, my, my, my mind and my my soul are full. This is wonderful. Thank you all so much for your generosity. Thank you, Robert.